So when teams looked on paper and they said, well, who's this kid? Yeah. You know, the, I didn't run into problems until they came out and looked at me. Yeah. And then when they saw me, they were like, are you, is th this is you? <laughs> Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. Look, as we all know, there are three phases to a football game. There's offense, defense, and special teams. And this postseason drove that home. Ask Buffalo. Ask Green Bay. Well, this week's guest is a guy who was the best special teamer I ever saw. I'm not talking returner. I'm talking special teamer. Kick coverage, punt coverage, blocking kicks, making tackles, being a gunner. The Bills' Steve Tasker. We sat down with Steve recently to talk about making his way, not as a receiver, his actual position, but making a mark as a special teamer extraordinaire. Steve, I guess let's start here. What would you now, at your age, with everything you've been through, say to you as a young kid of a minister traveling all over Kansas about how your career was going to play out? I would warn myself about how hard it was, how, you know, you got to work hard to get there. I mean, I knew I, I when I was coming out of high school, I weighed like 147 pounds. I was small. I was frail. And, you know, um, I was fast. I had some speed, but um, I knew there was a lot of things that I had to overcome. Most importantly, if I was going to play in the NFL, I was going to have to get physically strong enough to do it. And I think I'd warned myself about how hard that was going to be and how long it was going to take. Um, and just, you know, keep working hard at it. I, I, there's just no other way to do it. I, when I came out of high school, I just wanted to keep playing. So I went to a community college and I went to Northwest, you know, I just took it step by right. step and kept advancing my career little by little. And I think I just warned myself not to get discouraged, um, uh, just keep on plugging away and working hard and, and let it happen. Um, that's basically what I did. Yeah. But I'd warned myself how hard it was and how hard I was going to have to. Well, work. again, you you were never the physical specimen. You know what I mean? I'm sure at any level of football that you played, oh, yeah. did did were there ever coaches like you know? Very famously, Carl Nassib was told by then Penn State head coach Bill O'Brien, "Look, you have a dream to play in the NFL. It's not going to happen." And then, of course, he went out and has gone on to have a really nice career now with the Raiders. Was there ever a coach? that said to you along the way, whether in high school or JUCO or even at Northwestern, hey, it's great to have these aspirations, but understand it's probably not going to happen. Well, I had a coach tell me, um, and this was at this, I was in Dodge City Community College and was getting recruited by some places and stuff. And I had a coach tell me from, I think it was Fort Hayes State University in, in Kansas. He said, I just, I, I think you're, I think you're just too small to play up here, don't you? <laughs> I said, coach, I said, coach, if you think so, that's fine. I, I ended up playing at Northwestern University in the Big Ten. Yeah. But he just said, listen, I think you're too small, don't you? And uh, What did he expect you, know, what what, what did he expect you to say? Yeah, I think you're right. I'm going to stop doing all this shit because you finally shown me the right. light. Yeah. Yeah, it was rough. And but I I and this that followed me. That the way I looked was the problem in my NFL career. Yeah. In my in my careers advanced. I was a small, little skinny white kid from a small town in West, you know, rural city, rural town. And, and it followed me. And I, the, the famous, the story I famously tell is I was my first day as a Buffalo yeah. Bill. I got picked up off waivers late in the week and it's Marv Levy's first game as head coach. And he's standing there in front of this group. They were two and 14 in 85. They were two and 14 or two and 14 and 84, two and 14 and 85. And in 86, they were like one and eight. And it was week 10 of the NFL season, November, right? 
and he's it's his they switched head coaches. These guys were beat up. The Bills were beat up. They were downtrodden. They were their morale was low. And Marv stands up in front of him on the eve before his first game as head coach. And he captures the room. Like he's prepared. He's an executive. This guy knows the numbers. He knows what's happening. He's and he says, you know, really captures the really great communicator. Say, wow, this is what an NFL head coach should look like. And then you can see the, the guys in the room perk up, say, wow, we got a guy now. We're not going to be 2-14 and 14 anymore, yeah. right? So, And he says, and by the way, too, because we're going to get better right away. We got a new player from the Houston Oilers, Steve Tasker. He's going to cover kicks for us tomorrow. He's a good player. Steve, stand up. So these guys are like, wow, who is this guy? New coach. <laughs> Who's this stud? And they kind of turn around to look. you know. And I stand up. You could – the disappointment was <laughs> – palpable in the room it was they could not have been it was like i was a sixth grader yeah. and i won an essay contest be a buffalo bill for a day i mean that's what i looked like i was a little scrawny white kid you yeah. know i look frail small and you know and so i fought against that my whole trip all my whole journey through the ranks even in even in high school i looked like the ball yeah. boy let alone at Northwestern University. Well, I, I, and that's what I'm curious about. And we'll get to the Bills and, and how you got there because all of that, I think, is hilarious and interesting and it just it's such an inspiration to people that, you know, just keep plugging. But when you were being told by Fort Valley State co coach guy, not big enough to play here, how did you end up at Northwestern? They found out about me and recruited me. Um, there were some people, there were some, you know, like Kansas State University football, they kind of wanted me to walk on. They kind of wanted me to show up. I mean, Nebraska, uh, the big, the old Big yeah, Eight, that's where I grew eight, up, absolutely. the old Big Eight conference, you know, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and all those guys, Oklahoma State, Iowa State. A um, couple of those, they wanted me to walk on. And, they, and, and I only found out about that through the grapevine. I mean, no coaches came to visit me uh, or anything like that. Um, so I, I think Northwestern found out through whatever grapevine college coaches find out about people in the state of Kansas, you know, broadcasters, guys who would, who kind of keep their hand on the pulse of that conference. And there are some really good players in my junior college conference. I mean, Mike Rozier and Mel Gray yeah. were both in the backfield at Coffeyville University, Coffeyville, Kansas Junior College. I played against both those guys. They were in the same backfield, you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Uh, players like that were sprinkled throughout that conference. So – uh, there was some feelers out there that, that made it known that there were good players out there. My name statistically and, and through word of mouth said, hey, this is a kid that played pretty good at this conference. So some of these schools were interested in Northwestern. Dennis Green had just gotten the job before a year before. Denny Green. So Denny, though Denny, you know, put the feelers out there. Ron Turner came out and recruited me in Kansas and I and I took a trip up there. So at least they knew what I looked like, you yeah. know, when I showed up. And they said, yeah, come on up. And so I did. I took that. that I got that. And I got Western Kentucky. Uh, took a trip to there. Hilltoppers. And I also took a trip to University of Northern Iowa. Yeah, and, the North, and Northern Iowa. I went up there and took a trip there, which was kind of cool. So those three schools were interested in me. And, uh, you know, I picked Northwestern for obvious reasons. It's a great university. And I wanted to back myself up if, if I couldn't play right. in the NFL, which I didn't think I would. You know, I was keep plugging along, but I was like, listen, how – how long of a shot am I? I mean, I could see myself in the mirror every morning too. <laughs> so um, you better have a good education and have something, you know, at least you could work in Chicago right. if it didn't work so out. So when during your Northwestern campaign did you think, 
oh my god, I I, I potentially might get drafted here. Um, I was a I, I redshirted. I was there for three yeah. years. I redshirted my middle seed, my naturally senior year. I redshirted that year, and at this in the spring of that year, um, the pro scouts came. It was pro day, and all the seniors and all the guys eligible came out and and ran forties for the pros and lifted and did all this stuff. And and I had worked extremely hard to get strong enough and thick enough to play. When I came into college, I was a buck forty seven. My last year at Northwestern I was 185 nice. pounds, and it was all through just eating and working hard. And my, I was, you know, I was fit. I was fit, and um, my my like my my waist. I had 30. I had a 30 inch waist and 26 inch thighs. I mean, I was <laughs> I had a power plant, yeah. you know, so I could scoot, and I had some explosions. So when they came into Timus and lift and stuff, and I was benching way over 300 pounds. I was running a four, a four, four, low four, four, 40. Uh, my vertical jump was big. And so I measured out physically like when, so when teams looked on paper and they said, well, who's this kid? Yeah. You know, the, I didn't run into problems until they came out and looked at me. Yeah. And then when they saw me, they were like, are you, this is you, you know, <laughs> I mean, I had guys coming out, I had scouts coming out and they, they'd take one look at me and I could see the hesitation in them. They were like, Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah this is you on the, you know, this is you, you know, and then I, they'd time me and I'd run the cone, the three cone drill and all of that. And they'd, they'd look at the time and they'd look at me they, and they'd look at me again and they'd look at the time and say, you know what? Can you run that again? Yeah. Something's wrong with the watch that this can't be. Is that what yeah. they're saying? And I would snap off. I'd snap off another good time. And they'd be like, all right. You know, cause they knew if I timed out like that, they had to report Correct. it. Correct. And they were like, <laughs> but they didn't want, they didn't want anybody to see what I looked right, like. Right, right. To so, show the numbers. Yes. Right. So that's, that's what I lived yeah. with. So, so by the way, I don't know if there's a truer, and, and we're about the same age. Okay. I don't know if anything defines of a, a, a you being of a bygone era more than the next sentence that I'm about to say. You were drafted by, in a round that no longer exists. By a team right. that no longer exists. I mean, that is I, mean I don't I don't know a better way to sum up how correct. much things have changed than that. You were yeah. the ninth round pick, again, does not exist anymore, uh, to the to the Houston Oilers, a franchise that did not exist. Right. But you were in the same draft class with someone that I've spent a lot of time with. Right. Mike Golick. Yeah, yeah Golick and I were we got drafted in the Oilers. Warren Moon, it was his second year coming up. Oliver Luck. Was his backup. Andrew Luck's dad. Uh, you know, Mike Munchak, Bruce Matthews, Avon Riley, Greg Bingham. Uh, there were some guys still there. It was about a year or two after Earl Campbell went to play for, spend a couple of years with the Saints. New Orleans Saints. You know, Bum Phillips had mm -hmm. left. They'd had one coach between the guy that was coaching there, Hugh Campbell. They brought Hugh Campbell down from the Canadian Football League to coach the Oilers because they felt like that would entice Warren to come down and play for the Oilers. Everybody wanted Warren Moon because he was a talent. Yes, he was. I mean, that guy was a, that guy was a, that he was the dude and he had all the physical traits. And once he went to Canada and proved he could play professional football, I mean, it was totally, it was totally a, a racist environment that nobody wanted a black quarterback at that time. And there's no two, there's no way of getting around yeah, it. It was, a, they were shut. Everybody shied it away. It was a from horrible it. way of thinking. And Warren had to, yeah, he had to go to Canada and prove himself. And then when he did, he said, okay, and I'll come down and play. <laughs> then teams were standing in line. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
And he, and of course now he goes and he's in the hall of fame because of his career and he deserved to be, but that he was the guy. And I came in and the Canadian guys came in that staff. A lot of them were from Canada and in Canada, fortunately for guys like me, they had a lot of guys that looked like me in Canada that could play. Right. Well. They had a lot of Canadian guys that looked like me. So they had no qualms about taking me in the draft. They didn't care what I looked like. They, they had seen guys like that in Canada play, play well. So I show up and, you know, the Oilers draft three guys in my position. They drafted Mike Aku, me, and Willie Drury. And, my, you know, they had, you know, kid Mike Kelly. I think Mike Kelly from Notre Dame. And they had uh, Golick from Notre Dame. And Ray Childress was in our draft Ray class. Ray Childress, wow, what a player. Um, yeah, so it was some guys. and uh, But I was, I was very fortunate the Oilers had that staff because they'd seen guys who looked like me play well in another league. And said, well, let's, you know, let's, they didn't get caught up in right. that. So I was, I was very lucky. So when did you realize that, okay, if I'm going to have an impact, like I'll, I'll get some reps, but, but if I'm going to have an impact, I need to really shine on special teams. When, when did you sort of embrace that this is going to be who I am? I'll tell you this. The, the surprising thing to me was everything was different back then, obviously, yeah. we've already said. But, you know, we got drafted like on a Wednesday, Thursday or like on a when, I don't know what yeah. day it was. And then like less than a week later, we're all traveling down to Houston for a mini camp. Yep. I mean, it was like five days later, we were in uniform and, you know, helmets and <clears throat> pads, t-shirts yeah. and shorts, but no pads, but we were down there. And the first day we go out there, I was shocked. Athletically, I fit in. I competed at, I, yeah, I got these guys athletically. Yeah. What I didn't realize that I didn't know, pardon my friend, I didn't know shit from Sherbert ice cream about football. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I mean, I, I line up in, in college, you line up and you run your route, you know, back then in the, in the 80s. I didn't know you had to line up and then I didn't, I got to know where the safety is. I got to know where this guy, what, and if this guy rushes, I got to do a different route. I got, I had, mile light years to go to learn about football. And I realized quickly that was going to keep me out of the league. It wasn't my athleticism, which was a shock to me. It was my knowledge of football that was going to keep me out. So I, right away you start juggling. Okay. How can I make sure I stick around long enough to learn enough? And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, Hey, put me, I'll cover kicks. You got it. If if that keeps me around, I'll do whatever I got to do to get to the point where I can learn enough football to get on the field on offense or defense. Well, it, it certainly became your calling card. And uh, so, you, you know, you, you, you sort of found your way in, into the, uh, into the Oilers uh, with that draft pick and that staff was able to use you, but then you get waived. And at that point, are you thinking, well, it was a good run. I had a year and a half. I mean, was that sort of, were you, were you thinking that might be it? No, I, I here's the thing. They waived me and they put me over what was called back then procedural waivers. Yeah. They told me point blank. We had Tim Smith, who's a wide receiver, and he led the AFC in receptions for a couple of years. Timmy Smith, he got hurt. And then Ernest Givens got hurt. It was my second year in the league. And they needed me to be – I got hurt early in the season, but I was healthy enough to come back and play. They needed me to play on Sunday. So they had – but they only had three moves they could use on the waiver wire for freebies where they didn't have to cut a guy then bring him back. So they, they didn't want to use one of those on me. Because of, you know, they nobody's going to pick Tasker up. Yeah. So they waived me. They're going to put me on procedural waivers for 24 hours. And what that meant was I'd be waived. But then after the 24 hours, my contract kicked right back in with the Oilers. 
So they were going to sign me right back to the same contract. Monday of that week, this was Thursday night of that week, and the 24 hours started at 5 o'clock on Thursday. But Monday preceding that, Marv Levy had been hired by the Bills. They fired Hank Bulla, hired Marv Levy. Marv had said, hey, guys, we can't get better on offense or defense right away, but we can get better on special teams. If you see anything or you have any ideas, let me know. I'll listen. Thursday night, my name pops up over the waiver wire. The offensive coordinator from the Oilers the year before my rookie season was Joe Farragelli. He was the tight ends coach of the Bills that year. He goes to Marv and says, hey, Marv, these, they're trying to sneak him through. I know they like him. They need him to play. He's a good player, on, particularly on special teams. So he's on waivers. If you want to pick him up, he's available. And I know the kid can play. And Marv, you know, always think years later, Marv told me this years later. And I always think by the end of my career, I was thinking, wow, Tasker's available. Yeah, let's sign that. I can't believe they're waving him by that time. But that early, my Marv just goes, pick him up. I don't know him. <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> right. I was just a guy. Yeah. So they picked me up and, you know, then they, I show up and, and, uh, that that 48 hours going from the Houston Oilers to the Buffalo Bills isn't is it I mean it's an epic tale yeah and and it I mean, it's unbelievable and it literally changed your life in every way imaginable so why don't we take our first break here when we come back we'll continue this episode of half forgotten history with Steve Tasker one of the greatest special teamers in the history of the game and what it meant and what he became and what the Bills became once he got there stay right with us we'll come right back the NFL Draft takes center stage this week with the Combine getting underway in Indianapolis. And for the second straight year, which is good and bad, Jacksonville has the number one overall pick. Last year, of course, they took quarterback Trevor Lawrence with the top spot in 2021. But this year, it looks like they'll go in the trenches, either offensive or defensive line, which would end a four-year run of quarterbacks going first overall in the draft. Caesar Sportsbook has odds available for the first overall pick in the draft, and it does favor the trenches. Now, Michigan's defensive end Aiden Hutchinson opened in the top spot at plus 160, with Alabama tackle Evan Neal close behind at plus 200. But now that's flipped as Neal leads the way at plus 115, followed by Hutchinson at plus 205. Behind them, Oregon defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau, he's at plus 500, and NC State tackle Ikem Ikwanu is at plus 800. Liberty's Malik Wills is the first quarterback listed at 40 to 1, followed by Pittsburgh's Kenny Pickett at 50 to 1. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with Steve Tasker now in this episode of Half Forgotten History. Uh, and so, again, Marv built you up as you're going to be this thing, and everybody looked at you and said, that guy, really? But you 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 right. arrived at a very interesting time in the history of the Buffalo Bills. You got there yeah. right when all the pieces were starting to click into place to become the team that we knew that would go to four straight Super Bowls. How early on did you realize we can change everything about what people think we are? Well, that took a while, but I, you know, I, like I say, I mean, I walked into that room on uh, the night before Marv's first game as head coach. I walked into the team meeting in a hotel, you know, I sat back in the back, but I walked in, Bruce Smith was in the room. Jim Kelly was in the room. Andre Reed was in the room. Marv Levy had just become the head coach and was about to embark on the career that put him in the hall of fame. And Bill Polian sitting in the back of the room. Pretty good. 
It's a pretty good group. It's a pretty good group. I'm still cashing that lottery. <laughs> yeah, I, I cash that. I still cash that lottery ticket. I walked in. I was the first new player in Marv's regime. Yeah. So, but it took a while, and at the end of that year, there it became obvious. Jim, early on, there were some bumps with yep. Jim and his career in Buffalo. Yep. He came in. There's never been a player that arrived in any city at any time in any era with more expectations placed on them than Jim Kelly arriving in Buffalo. Yeah, he had he had turned he had that turned guy, Buffalo down, wanted to go to the USFL, lit up the Houston Gamblers. I remember the whole right. thing. And when he finally showed up, everything was pinned on him. The success of that franchise going forward was his and his alone. Now we also got he got help from Marv and Bruce and all that, but and I'll tell you, nobody ever came through in a bigger way than Jim yep. did the next eleven years. But early on in his career, Jim knew that there were some pieces around him that they needed to change, and he was adamant about getting it done. When a guy, he was yelling and screaming at guys on the sideline, he was not putting up with bad routes. He was. Telling, telling the coaches, you got to take that guy off the field and put that guy on the field. That guy stinks. I'm not going to go with him because he's given up on play. You know, the whole thing. He was he was making waves. But <laughs> the freaking guy backed it up, yeah. right? So so he shows up, and, and Bruce, Bruce the same way. Bruce was, you know, by himself on the defensive side for a while. Daryl Talley. And, you know, would hem Bruce in. And, and those so those two guys, Bruce and Jim, one on either side of the ball, there was some turmoil in that team before they actually turned the corner. You know, 87, Jim's second year in the league was a strike yeah. year. And we're like, ah. So we're kind of getting it together, right? And then 88 comes and something changed. We're all of a sudden, we're going 12 and four and we're busted loose. I mean, there was, we had some guys. You had the dudes. And Marv and Bill had put together a roster with some quality guys around Jim, some quality guys around Group Bruce, more quality guys. They had an idea of the team. Because there was no free agency, you couldn't change all that fast. No. And they finally put it together in 88s when they fin- we finally said, all right, and we go to Cincinnati, we lost in the Ch- AFC Championship game. That's when it was like, okay, we've got the engine now. Can we make sure, we, can we fine-tune this engine and, and keep running down the road? That was, we knew we had enough guys then. So w- when you were on special teams, like you, you did everything. You returned kicks, you were a gunner. Uh, you know, you made sure that the, the returner didn't go anywhere. You blocked punts. What What was your favorite part of all those things? Did you like one thing more than the other in all those special team roles they put you in? Well, there's nothing better than blocking a punt. Yeah. Uh, that was great. But those are so few and those are like a blue moon. You yeah. know, you got to really time it right and some things have to happen for that. I, I think on, as a cons- on a consistent basis, though, I think everybody uh, – uh, you know, and they take they've taken it out of the game a little bit now. Sure. But I think covering kickoffs is an absolute blast. I used to just love it. I used to love covering kicks. First of all, it's either the start of a game where it's the most, you know you're let's go yeah. man, let's kick this thing off and go, or your team's just scored and some good things are happening. And I was on a good team with a really good offense, so we kicked off a lot, and it was just fun to go down and bounce around down there and and take guys on and take them out and get knife through, make plays and get position it was just fun there's nothing like it 80 you know particularly in your own building where you know you just scored and you know you get a chance to like put an exclamation point after a kickoff force a fumble something like that um i think for me even though it's changed so much in today's game because of all the touchbacks and the player safety that happens you know there's no wedges anymore right. you say you don't have you don't get it <laughs> you don't get to break a wedge you know <laughs> so uh kickoffs are 
for me was always a lot of fun. Um, I loved doing them. And I, it, I just had a lot of a lot of great times because, you know, it was a lot of big contact, a lot of big train wrecks. But uh, I always seemed to walk away from them okay. So that was I think that was just the fun part of it. Uh, football's about making tackles and running the ball and trying to do it. And, and that's a play that is stripped down to its very core. Absolutely. There's a guy with the ball. Go get right. it. Um, you started getting a lot of attention for your special teams play. What what was that process like? Because everybody wants to play and they want to be on offense, yeah. especially if you're, you know, I want to score. I want to make catches. And you you did that. But, like, you became known as the special teams guy. And when you started being recognized, I mean, like, you went to seven Pro Bowls, essentially, as a special teamer. That still is a very unique thing in the history of the NFL. What did it mean to have that mantle? Well, it was cool. I mean, it, it, you know, major – the better you play, the harder it is to play well yeah. because other teams scout you and they start doing things against you. And, I, and I've talked to other guys too, uh, even current players. I'm sure Matt Slater's been through this where, you know, you can't even watch. It's, it's almost a pointless exercise to watch film because everything they do against everybody else is never what they do against you right. because they don't think about other team and players like they think about you. So you're stuck with this new look every, every time you're going out blind a little bit. And I remember going out and covering punts and you'd get, first of all, you go out there and you get a, a guy on you. It's a, like the backup strong safety is, is on you. Like when I first get to Buffalo and then after a few weeks of that, then it's like, okay, I got a strong safety. And then I get another backup safety on me and those guys can't do it. And then the next thing you get a backup corner and a, and a better strong safety. Right. And then after that, and you, you go through that process, they keep trying different guys. And pretty soon you get two starting corners on you. Yeah. You get the two guys that play down a distance, the best athletes, and they're on you. So you know you've come a ways. And then after a while, you get two guys on you, and then there's a third guy running out from inside to, to knock you off as well. All of those things happen and progressively gets worse. I'll never forget. I get to the first my first Pro Bowl, and this was not because I was a great player. It's just the, the way the rosters are set up at the Pro Bowl. I go out to cover my first <laughs> my first punt in a Pro Bowl. And the two guys on me, one is Daryl Green <laughs> and the other is Ronnie Lott. So Good I'm luck. like, okay, I can – so I'm like, well, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, <laughs> right? So so you got Ronnie Lott and Daryl Green on you. It's like, man, oh, man, that's that's a different animal. Yeah. But that's how it happened. You, you evolve through the other team's roster and you – and certainly it's a, an honor and it's a, a tip of their cap to you for putting those guys on. Sure. But it makes your job a lot hard, harder, no question about it. But that's how I knew that I was having good years and, and I knew that the level of respect was rising because, you know, you were running through the roster. You weren't getting special teamers out there anymore. You were getting starting guys that were coming out to try and double team. Well, listen, you were getting the recognition. The team was getting the recognition. Uh, and, you know, you, you – you go to four straight Super Bowls, and I, I've said this a lot, and I've, I've spent some time with Thurman and Jim and Bruce, and we talk about this a lot. I, I don't think people, outside of Buffalo, I don't think people truly appreciate how hard it is to go to four straight Super Bowls having lost every single one of them. You know, I mean, the, the Super Bowl hangover we talk about is real for a lot of teams and just that to go every time 
and find a different way to not come across the finish line, but still have the mental strength to me, more than the physical strength, the mental strength to say, no, no, this time it's going to be different. I think it's one of the most amazing accomplishments in all of football that doesn't get its place in history that I believe it deserves. Yeah, it was a special group of guys. And I think the mental toughness that you talk about and the atmosphere that Marv and Bill created with the guys in the locker room and the fact that it was in that era helped because it was homegrown guys. We drafted them. We developed them. It was only one or two guys, maybe as free agents, that would sign with the Bills during that time, during the four Super Bowls. I don't know if I can – well, James Lofton yeah. would be the one that comes to mind. But for the most part, they were all guys that we drafted. They were all young guys who came up with Jim and Bruce and Thurman and Andre being the top guys in the game. And the mental toughness that happened during that run, sometimes, and let's face it, we were fortunate at times, sure. no question. But the mental toughness that it took to get was sometimes the only thing that allowed us to win a game that helped us to advance. Otherwise, four straight Super Bowls don't happen because one game at the wrong time and you're out. The, the four years, the whatever it was, 60-plus games that we played over the course of those four years, almost 70 games over the course of those four years, playoffs and regular season, one of those games goes the other way and it's it's all gone. You know, you don't go back to the second Super Bowl or you don't go back to the third Super Bowl, you know, or you don't go to the first Super Bowl. You know, because one game goes the other direction. And it's the mental toughness and the culture that helped us to win those, you know, that singular game that helped us to keep it going. So, yeah, there's no question. It was a special atmosphere in that locker room and on that team. Well, listen, you mentioned luck and, you know, that mental that mental sort of fortitude that you needed. That was never more on display than in the ultimate comeback in the history of the playoffs against the team that drafted you, the Houston Oilers. Uh, you guys infamously yeah. fall down 35-7 to seven, uh, in the second half after – 35-3, sorry, in the, in the second half after that pick six. And you guys just went on fire. Like, and this was without uh, – this was without Jim. Uh, Frank Reich is in yeah. there. Without uh, that, and, and, yeah, and without and – that, and at that time, by the way, Frank Reich had held the record for the greatest comeback in the history of college football, and he was – the the quarterback at Maryland that took down stunningly took down the U when the U was at the peak of its power with Jimmy Johnson. So take me through that game because at that point when it's 35 to three and you're like, well, we got a backup quarterback in there. We don't have Thurman in there. It's been a good run. We've been to a couple of Super Bowls, but you know, how did you, what were, what were people saying on the sidelines of that game? Really, and it was a little bit of a nod to Marvin, the uh, culture. It was more about, for me, what I remember is the attitude was, and I think without ever having talked to guys, or I think the, the prevailing attitude on our sideline was, okay, we've been to two straight Super Bowls already, and it was a good run, and it may be over today. But Marv told us at halftime, he said, okay, whatever happens, just don't let anybody say you quit. So that's really basically the attitude. We're going to go out and finish. We'll play hard. We'll finish the game. We made the playoffs this year. Still, it's a pretty good, successful season. But we're going to finish up. We're going to continue to play hard, and we're going to you know, just we're going to finish this up like champions. You know, we're going to go out, and we're not going to lay down. This is a playoff game, and we owe it to the fans. We owe it to ourselves. 
we're going to finish and play hard. So there was that attitude of like, we're not quitting, even though the odds are against us, even though we know there's, you know, a 1% chance that there's, ever, you know, we're ever going to, you know, win this game. We owe it to this, the run we've had and to ourselves to to come out and finish this hard. So we're, we, we're, we decided, I think the prevailing atmosphere was, Trey, listen, let's just keep playing hard. That, that's all we got to do, and that's all we can do. And that's that was it. I mean, there were no expectations. Yeah. Well, you know? when – but, it, okay, there were no expectations. But, I mean, literally, if you had not made one first down or had – like, it never would have happened. At what point – because I remember the place started going crazy. You know, Orchard Park started yeah. rocking like I'd never seen it before. At what point in the game, in the second half, did you guys think, we actually might pull this off? It was – there's stages of it, no question. But the earliest stage where I thought the crowd – we captured the crowd back. We score and we go up. It's 35-10. After they, they scored the pick yeah. six, we come back out. And I've seen it a million times when a good team, even a good team, a great team, a championship team takes their foot off the gas and playing the worst team in the league that, and they it's bing, bing, bing touchdown. And that's what happened to the Oilers. They knew that game was over and they're defense. They were out there going through the motions. And we, like I said, started, we continued to play hard and it was like a four play drive all the way down, touchdown to Don Beebe. And that's the play that he went out of bounds on, right? That he shouldn't have counted. So, we score and it's like okay, whatever. Deep Beebs, it famously in our locker room, Kenny Davis came to high five Beebs. Beebs didn't even high five him back. <laughs> he left his boy hanging. <laughs> it's like forget, it. you know. We're just you know. So we were walking out. When the the first time the crowd got into it was the next play, we surprised yep. onside. That was a signal that it was a big fu. We're not laying down. Let's go. The crowd kind of, and the pre, they started to appreciate. They were like, "Wow, thank you. I, we appreciate the pride that you just showed, knowing in a hopeless cause that you're not letting up after two Super Bowls. You're not going to lay down." We appreciate that crowd kind of cheered that re- recovery, and then, like again, two or three plays later, we're in the end zone, and then you could people, everybody, every, the Oilers. Their coaching staff, the Bills, our coaching staff, and every fan in the stands, and even the announcement, everybody's looking at the scoreboard going, okay, 35, now 17. And they're starting to do the mental right. math of what's left. We're 18 points down, or whatever it is, 20, whatever it is. I can't 18. even think. We're like 18 points down, 17 down. It's like, okay, they start counting, right? And – then, you know, the Oilers come out and they their offense plays exactly like their defense did, you know, and things just start to go back and forth. And we go down, we score again. We scored three touchdowns very quickly in that third quarter. And after you scored the third one, it's like, wow. Yeah, then it was on. It was on. And that was – and it was uh, – it, it got it, – it, esca- it just crescendoed with every passing score and every down, every good thing and bad thing that happened. It was absolutely insane. And, and then, of course, you, you go uh, – you take down – I think you went to Miami and take down the, the Dolphins in the AFC Championship game that year. And then you get to the Super Bowl. So you, you've lost two straight Super Bowls. You know, you lost uh, Super Bowl 25 to the Giants, inf- infamously one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time. I'm not even going to say the words. Why? You know what? Uh, that one was a heartbreaker. Then, then you go back and, you know, Thurman can't find his helmet in, in Super Bowl 26 on the sidelines, 37-24. You lose that one to, to Washington. 
Then you get Dallas. And this game could not have started better for you guys. Super Bowl 27, Rose Bowl. You come up with a block punt early in that game on Saxon, uh, and you guys get an easy score. You have to be thinking at this point, this is it. It is going to be our what we went through in the playoffs to get here with our backup quarterback, greatest comeback ever, and me doing this on the Super Bowl stage, what I do to set us up. You had to think at that point, it is going to be our time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we felt, you know, we were a really good football team, and we really felt because of the comeback game and because of the way the uh, the championship game went, down in Miami, we had really found ourselves offensively. We kind of felt like we were back on track. We had struggled at the end of the season, just kind of snuck in as a wild card. We had to go to Miami because they won yep. the division. Uh, you know, it was, you know, it, we really felt, though, that we had got our mojo back uh, with the comeback game and then with the way we played. Uh, I can't even remember who the divisional round was against, but we played really well up until, you know, going to the uh, the championship game. And, um, and then to have it go so well early on in that game against Dallas, uh, yeah, we th- felt like okay, here we go, let's go. And uh, you know, as you know, as you as you know, uh, Dallas wanted no part of it, and we started turning the football over. And you know, you can't re- we never recovered from it. We we turned the football over throughout the entire game. We had like nine turnovers. They got 30, th- I mean, 30, 35 points off nine turnovers. If that if that doesn't speak to a team's collective mindset. I don't know what else does. I mean, I mean, I turned it over. I fumbled it once on a catch. We fumbled on a kickoff. Andre fumbled it. Thurman fumbled it. That who, you know, Beebs fumbled it. Every single guy who touched the football shared in it. And I, if that doesn't speak to what happens in a team mentality sometimes that, you know, you can either, it's either a plus or a minus or whatever you want to call it. And either good things happen like it did in the comeback game or bad things happen like it did in Super Bowl 27. It's real. And I you could I mean that's tangible evidence that something in our psyche as players after being through what we'd been through to get to that third Super Bowl started to turn south on us. Um that's tangible proof that that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, and then after that heartbreak you find your way back, you know, in Super Bowl rematch in Super Bowl 28, you guys are up at the half, you get shut out in the second half, and you know Th- uh, Thurman with the fumble that James Washington scooped and turned it, that really turned that game around. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. It, you know, post game press conferences, you know, they're always terrible for the the losers because they have to sit there and take all these questions. Daryl Talley, God bless him. I'll, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Someone asked him deep down, "What's it like?" to come to four straight Super Bowls and lose all four of them. And he gave the greatest answer I've ever heard in my life. He stared at the report and says, well, it's a bitch if you must know. And I was like, damn, that – I don't think anybody could have summed it up any better than that. <laughs> yeah, it, no question. Um, and we had to live with you being – after being such a good football team, being we had to live with being a laughing stock yeah. for – a long Which is time such crap. That. It's such crap. Until well, that's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, it's, what you, it's kind of what you sign up for. Yeah. You know, you might happen. Uh, but we had to live with that probably until all of our guys were out of the league. Um, until you know Bruce and and then when they started, and I'll say this: when Marv went in the Hall of Fame, it began to change a little bit. And then Jim and 
Bruce and Thurman, you know, Jim and Bruce being first ballot Hall of yeah, Famers. Andre. And Marv being a, really kind of a first ballot Hall of Famer um, said a lot about how, at least how football people perceive that team. And that started to change things quite a bit. But there's no question, there was a string of years, a long, maybe a decade, where you had to kind of live with it. And, uh, I, you know, we got, and like, you know, some people are like, really feel like they got to tiptoe around the, you know, like, you don't want to say the words wide right to me in an yeah. interview. We're, I think most of the guys on that team are okay with it now. Yeah. You heal up. Because the respect that we've gotten as the years have gone by has increased to a point where we don't feel like a laughing stock. And the predominant memories we have of those four Super Bowls are the players and the friends and the relationships we have to this day. Yeah, that bond. And that's Yeah, cool. that bond will never never be broken. Uh, why don't we take our second break here? When we come back, we'll, we'll finish up here with Steve Tasker about the things that he's done after his playing days, including navigating a network through one of the most interesting times in Super Bowl history. Stay with us. Coming back with Steve Tasker. The NFL Draft takes center stage this week with the Combine getting underway in Indianapolis. And for the second straight year, which is good and bad, Jacksonville has the number one overall pick. Last year, of course, they took quarterback Trevor Lawrence with the top spot in 2021. But this year, it looks like they'll go in the trenches, either offensive or defensive line, which would end a four-year run of quarterbacks going first overall in the draft. Caesars Sportsbook has odds available for the first overall pick in the draft, and it does favor the trenches. Now, Michigan's defensive end Aiden Hutchinson opened in the top spot at plus 160 with Alabama tackle Evan Neal close behind at plus 200. But now that's flipped as Neal leads the way at plus 115, followed by Hutchinson at plus 205. Behind them, Oregon defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau. He's at plus 500. And NC State tackle Ikem Ikwanu is at plus 800. Liberty's Malik Wills is the first quarterback listed at 40 to 1, followed by Pittsburgh's Kenny Pickett at 50 to 1. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with Steve Tasker here on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So after your playing days are over, uh, you navigate into the broadcast booth, uh, spent many years at CBS, and you found yourself in one of the most unusual situations of all time, Super Bowl forty-seven in New Orleans between the Niners and the Ravens, and out of nowhere, power failure at the Superdome. What was your initial reaction when that happened? I said it was interesting because I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, nobody knew what we were able to do technologically and what we weren't because there was some power, but not enough. Right. Uh, Jim and Phil in the booth, they were out. Nobody could talk to them. Sidelines, and this is because of things that had happened in the past. We had hardwired mics and wireless IFBs. The hardwired mics were working. The wireless stuff was not. So my A2, and I, you know, the, yeah, you know sure. what I'm talking yeah. about. My A2 was Vic. Vic goes, Victor says, hey, you, he, and he's talking, and Lance Barrow, bless his heart, in the truck is, you know, you could hear the bricks hitting the floor of the truck, man. They didn't, you know, and 
Vic, my A2, he's got hardwired headphones. You know, he's got the big, you know, set and he's talking. He goes, and he looks at me, he goes, you can hear uh, Lance, right? You can hear Lance, right? And I go, no, I, I can't hear anything. Yeah. And he gets this look on his face like, oh, gosh. So he takes his headphones off and gives them to me, just puts them on my ears. Yeah. And I then I could hear Lance. He goes, hello, everybody. who can hear me? And I said, Lance, this is Steve Tasker. I hear you now. He goes, Steve Tasker. You can hear me. All right. Listen, here's what we're going to do. Because he's from yeah, South yeah, Texas yeah. and stuff. He's like, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to come out of commercial. You're going to tell everybody what happened. And we're going to show them the video. And we're going to go right back to commercial. You got me. I go, Lance, I got it. No problem. He goes, all right, hold on. And he clicked off. And, he's, and, he, and I know he's screaming in the truck. Tell him we're going to. He comes popping on just about this long. It took him. To, it's all the time we had. He goes, all right, Steve Tasker, you're going to take it out commercial. In five, four, three, you know, that's all the load. That's all the notice I got. And so, you know, I come out, I had no monitor. I had nothing to go by except Lance in my ear as I spoke. He says, we're showing him the video, you know, that kind of thing. He says, I got to take it back. So that's about all the break. And, and of course, in retrospect, you know, it's live TV, Trey. You've done oh, yeah. it decades like I have. You'd probably never come off live TV thinking, ah, I wish I could have had one more. If I'd have done it one more try, I could have done a little better. Yeah. You know, you can think about how massively I think about that moment that I could have done better than I did if I just had a few more nuggets of truth <laughs> that I knew that I could spell, you know, I could share. Nobody knew anything, me most of all. And uh, so they come back and once they, they go to break for another two minutes, they, you know, they roll out the studio guys, Solomon Wilcox gets his, my, he gets his headphones on. So I got Solomon to interact with. And then we go on and the, and the whole team takes over from there. And it was, you know, I, I, you know, I just got us out of break and got us back to break, but you know, it's, yeah, it's, I, it was great. I'm glad that, that I, I, I know this too, of all the things I did at CBS, for the, you know, catastrophic way that sounds that we got a power outage in the Super Bowl, I was pretty proud of the way our crew handled. Well, you and you uh, should be. It was great, you, you, Steve. You should be. And I'll tell you, I didn't. I was at the game. Uh, I had brought my son and a bunch of his friends as a high school graduation present. So you know, I, I didn't see it till later. By the way, side note: terrible situation there. I'm up in the Detroit Lions booth with a friend of mine. My son and his friends are down there in the tickets. The power goes out. Then dad mode kicks in. I'm like. Holy hell, what is happening here? I'm responsible for three other human beings. I got to get to them somehow, some way. But my point being, I didn't see what you did until after I'd gotten back and we were back at ESPN and watching. You were remarkable in that situation. You really held the broadcast together at a very critical time. So I don't want people to just, I don't want you to gloss over that. What you were able to do under the most difficult of circumstances to me was one of the best things I've ever seen in sports television. Well, I, I appreciate those kind words that, um, you know, but there's, you know, if I'd have had it to do over again, I would have, cal I would have calmed people down a little bit more than I did because you forget yeah. at, a, at a venue like that power goes out, whatever you're looking for smoke, you're listening for a boom, yep. Yep. right? You're looking for, you're looking for a commotion. Something happened. There's like, and I, I say, I, I, you know, you know, a terrorist. I, act. I was thinking the exact same thing. Right. So I was, I, w I wish, cause there was, n I was really thinking back on it. I'm really shocked that, that I wasn't asked to say something about it because 
there was no panic, really no panic in the stands at all because there was no event that went a long way. There was no pop. Right. There was no loud noise. There was no gunshots in the distance. There was no crazy man doing something. It was just, I was like, hey, hey, hey. Folks, I know if any of you have loved ones here at the Super Bowl, just know this. There is no sense of panic. Yeah. There was no event. There was no smoking gun. This is like we're all in our rec room and Uncle Lenny leaned against the light switch. <laughs> so just let's take a breath. Yeah. yeah you know? No. Uh, I wish I would have said that. It would be hard to, to – but like you, even you, Solomon Wilcox, he was like telling his A2, he says, we got to get out of here. Something happened. Yeah. yeah. And it, so there was, you know, that thought, and I never really – communicated that to the people watching or whatever, but I was shocked that in the day and age in which we live, that the joint stayed as calm as it did. Yeah, it really did. Is 80,000 people. Yeah. And you know, at least 1% of them are like trigger happy, right. right? I mean, they're like, they're like going, Oh my God. Yeah. But none of that came out. I was shocked at how calm the entire joint stayed. Yeah. Well, I think, and, I think what you did was a big part of that. Yeah, I, was, I just, I don't know, maybe, but it was it was something. The, the debate rages on all the time. Oh, special teams guy. You know, that means you are, you're not a starter. Well, it's a part of the game. And, and my thing is, if it's a part of the game and you're the best at it, then it should be recognized in the Museum of Football. Like, Ray Guy finally got in as the first pure punter. We've only had a couple of pure kickers get in. I don't think that just because of what you did, it should be, if you're the best at something in football, then you should be in the hall of fame. That's my opinion. Where are you on, on this journey? And it's honor. I mean, to be in that conversation, I mean, it's, it's humbling and it's, and I treasure it. I do. Um, I'm, I know this too. I, I came into the league just after the era. And I, I call it maybe the golden era of special teams began when the rosters on game day got to be 46, 47 guys. And all of a sudden, that era began where every team had a position group of special teams players. You have a position group of wideouts. They have a room. They got, you know, you got D-line room, the linebacker room, the defensive back room. Special teams guys are a position group. And they became that uh, during the era just before and right when I came into the league. You have a group of guys that are on the team to play those plays. And that's their job. And they're professional special teams players. And it's been that way ever since. And I think, and I've been very, my heart's been warmed by the, the reception and the way I was treated during my playing days. And even now by Jim Kelly, Bruce Smith, Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed, Kent Hull, Daryl Talley, the guys who played regular down and distances for our team have always treated me and the guys that I played with on special teams as equal members and contributors to a team that was really good. They have always done nothing but been supportive of us, of me personally, and guys like me, Mark Pike and Carwell Gardner and Chris Hale Gardner. and guys like wow. that. I know on our team, we felt appreciated, respected, and uh, I know we contributed in a lot of ways to the success our team had. So I know that there's a, rage, a debate raging and you get into snap counts about how can a guy who played 20% of the snaps, you know, which is what special teams are. They're about one in every five snaps is a special team snap, you know, but, but there's, you know, the special teams plays are weighted. It's the 
It's the play when you give the ball to your opponent. Willie, yeah. you got to punt it to him. I mean, like, by, by that um, nature, no punter or kicker should ever be in. You right. Know? And also, uh, you give the ball to your opponent. Field position, which is, you know, a staple of success in the NFL, is dictated by that play. And it's a direct try for points. If you got a kicker like Jan Stenerud or, or you know, uh, Tyler Bass or Justin Tuck, I mean, that's money. Yeah. That's points. Uh, so those special teams – 20% of the plays that are special teams, they're heavily weighted in how successful the other two sides of the football, the offense and defense are going to be. Um, and with professional special teams players on your team, it's hard to argue that's not, <laughs> that there's not a lot in there. Yeah. You know, it's hard to argue about their importance well, without coming out on the side that, yeah, they're pretty important. Well, look, and- so I, I get the debate, no question about it. Um, and I know this too, when I was coming up through my playing days and the old, old guys would poo-poo special teams, even the player, the old players would poo-poo special teams because they came from rosters that were 36 guys. You know, their roster had 33 guys suited up on game day. Yeah. I mean, everybody played special teams back then. And it was a, you know, your defensive line was taking a breather on special teams because they, you know, they'd cover the kick and hope the guy kicked it out of bounds. (laughs) It's different now. Completely. And teams that win use all 47 guys on game day. Yeah. All of them. What? And so all 47 of those guys are contributing. Well, look, um, I don't have a vote, but if I did, uh, Steve Tasker would be a Hall of Famer. Uh, so well, I appreciate I, uh, I've always appreciated watching you play, and I've loved your, your broadcasting career afterwards. And uh, the stories about the Bills never get old for me because I, I just don't think – I think we're getting there, but I don't think yet people understand what it was like to do what you guys did, four straight Super Bowls, the only team in the history uh, of Super Bowls to do it and to be on the losing side of all of them just speaks to the mental strength that we talked about. Steve, always a pleasure to catch up with well, you, Trey, man. I appreciate and, it. And uh, best of luck, and uh, we'll see what happens going forward, all right? Trey, I thank you so much, and I'm a fan of yours, too. I've watched you for, for a long, long time, and I appreciate being on with you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, brother. Thanks once again to Steve Tasker. Really disappointed that he didn't find his way into the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, on his last year on the ballot. We'll see what happens if he goes to the veteran trial. But coming up next, what if you have a brother, and it's a twin brother, and you both went on to exceptional careers in the NFL? Uh, That's next week's guest, Tiki and Rondé Barber on Half Forgotten History. Oh, we had a time. We'll see you then.